Life is far from normal. Yet in the eyes of history, COVID-19 is fairly standard. So can past pandemics teach us about this current moment? Or are we doomed to repeat our mistakes? I'm Luke Garrett. And I'm Laura Spitalniak. Although this is the first pandemic many of the living have experienced, humanity has faced pandemics throughout history. The Spanish flu, cholera, and smallpox, to name a few. This week, we hit the books and spoke with Graham Mooney, Associate Professor of the History of Medicine and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. He explained how past pandemics mirror our current one, how we eradicated one disease, and why we haven't been able to do it since. So, Professor, we'd like to start by talking about the medical history of pandemics and what that can teach us about this current moment. You know, we're in a time where normalcy seemed within reach, but it's now fading out of sight as the Delta variant takes hold and COVID is likely to become an endemic virus or a virus that's pretty much here to stay. So this raises the question, do pandemics ever really end? Epidemics and pandemics of disease may well come and go, but they very rarely disappear altogether. And there's only one example of a disease has been completely eradicated, and that's smallpox. So there are epidemiological criteria in relation to morbidity and mortality, but there are other ways of thinking about ending as well. One of the ways historians think about this is through memory and historical record. One example of that might be the influenza of 1918-19, the kinds of potential mortalities that COVID-19 might wreak were referred back to the 50 million deaths, at least, of the influenza pandemic of 1918-19, but also the sorts of mitigation measures as well. So the memory of that pandemic hasn't left us. It's continually being repackaged and rethought of and reframed in the context of SARS. So it's never ended. And in fact, biologically, you could say that 1918 the influenza pandemic hasn't ended either because we're still living with descendants of that virus. So in that respect, some diseases literally never go away, but also in the public imagination, in the historical record, they never end either. Which is probably good to have a strong sense of the history so you're not Well, you'd like to think we're not doomed to repeat it, but here we are. Actually, I'd be curious how you would have expanded on the, I'm putting air quotes around this, the branding of the Spanish flu, because my very limited historical understanding is that it was because Spain was just the first country to acknowledge it was happening, right? There had been other cases, other places. Yeah, that's true. Because of the First World War, there were media embargoes in other countries, and restrictions on what could be reported. And so, you know, Spain freely reported it, so it became known as the Spanish flu. And so it existed somewhere else, or it came from somewhere else, which is in itself an interesting narrative about pandemics, where they come from and where they end. So that origin story is very important. Yeah, there's something ironic about being the first country to report on it and be open about something, and then you're kind of stuck with this moniker that might not reflect you in the best light. Exactly. Talking about how information spreads and how we're packaging it. One of the things that has made getting people vaccinated so difficult is misinformation. It's kind of like a virus unto itself because of how prevalent it is and how easily it spreads. Did people push back against cures, vaccines, and do we know why? One really good example is the cholera pandemic. There's some very good documentation in the 19th century of what have been termed the cholera riots in different towns and cities and places, particularly in Europe. And that was because the sorts of restrictions that were put in place, such as attending funerals, for example, or going to places of worship, they were differentially implemented. Quite often, it would be the local political elite who would implement 
these sorts of restrictions, but they wouldn't be subjected to them themselves. So a lot of working class folks, poor folks, resented having to go to hospital, be forced to go into hospital, not be able to visit their relatives when their relatives were in hospital, not see their relatives if their relatives died in hospital because the body would be taken straight to the cemetery and buried without their involvement. And yet these regulations were differentially implemented. And so you had a lot of unrest and disquiet about that, and particularly around what was going to happen to these dead bodies of folks. The cholera pandemics in the early 19th century in particular occurred at a very similar time that medical schools and anatomy schools were being accused of procuring dead bodies for the purposes of anatomy and teaching. People were frightened about what would happen. Some of the arguments were that, well, we think that cholera is transmitted through contaminated water and food. Maybe the elites poisoning the water deliberately to kill poor folks, A, to control poor folks, but B, also to have their bodies for medical education. So these are the kinds of things, wow. you know, when, you, when you spoke about medical, you know, about misinformation before, maybe misinformation, but misinformation that takes hold because of a lack of trust between different class groups, different socioeconomic groups. And also during pandemics and epidemics, usually it's wealthy folks who can protect themselves the easiest and they can isolate in their homes if they want to because they've got more space. They can take themselves off to their country residence, which is what happened a lot during plague times. So what the pandemics do is reflect social stresses that may already exist in society and they deepen them and they open those fissures and they become more readily observable. I realize this is the whole point of this episode, but I am continuously struck by the parallels between now and when you're talking about just the distrust, even the running off to the country home. I think yeah. of uh, Jackson Hole Valley in Wyoming, which very rural, not a lot of people, but it's also known as a getaway spot for the wealthy. And when they went, they took COVID with them and it spiked for this entire community. Yes. I mean, in some ways, I suppose it's nice to know that we're not alone in history, as people rarely are, mm-hmm. but it's also a little, little like, oh, so there's always been yeah, yeah. conspiracy but, theories around but, stuff well, like this. Yeah, no, yeah. There's always been not just conspiracy theories, but it's not surprising that rumor and falsehood and misinformation can take hold because people grasp at what they want to grasp. But if in normal times, whenever's normal, whatever that means, you, you have distrust, then it makes it much more difficult in stressful times to make claims on trust that isn't there. If you have a medical care system that doesn't provide services, healthcare services for the poor and most needy in society, then when something like a pandemic comes along and you're asking people to protect the health of everybody by their actions, it's very difficult. You can see where people, yeah, where there's a disconnect. If the state isn't protecting people's health, or it's such a fight to secure your health under normal circumstances, that it's very difficult for people to trust a system that doesn't protect their health. So yes, that's where I think some of that issue around trust comes from, is people being asked to do things that they don't see any reciprocity. Yeah. And without that reciprocity, what does it take to actually end a pandemic if there's not trust? I mean, Do we have a historical sense of when we would return to some variation of normal? And does the virus determine that or do we collectively? Both. I don't want to be a biological determinist about this, and it depends on the virus. If you think about how we've learned to live with the influenza virus, seasonal influenza vaccines 
pretty routine in many parts of the world. They're mandated in a lot of healthcare settings, for example, workplace settings. Measles, we've learned to live with that virus. We know it doesn't go away because every time the immunisation rates dip, the cases spike in a lot of places. So we've learned to live with it through battling the virus at a cellular level. But I think one of the problems around that is we see the vaccine a sort of magic bullet. One fell swoop, we can get rid of a disease. Classic example, smallpox vaccination. Smallpox, a scourge for thousands of years, was eradicated through vaccination. That took nearly 200 years. Smallpox vaccination was discovered in the late 1700s by a physician in the southwest of England. And it didn't come without a lot of fights, a lot of battles, and without really concerted national government commitment, but also international government commitment. So it wasn't eradicated until the late 70s, early 80s, until a massive World Health Organization global eradication campaign. But along the way, there'd been a lot of resistance that's put up against vaccination. In some ways, that has been held up as a model of what can be achieved. But it's so difficult to achieve that level of immunity to eradicate a disease through a vaccination campaign, as we're seeing with COVID. And until you reach that level of immunity, you're going to keep getting variants appearing and you're going to keep getting these sequential revisitations and threats. And so that's where the living with the disease comes in. If as a society we can't reach the kinds of levels of immunisation or vaccination that are required to at least make something like COVID-19 cyclical, then we're deciding to live with the disease on the kinds of pressures that puts on our healthcare system, our economy and so on. And that's clearly something that we as a society choose to make, whether some of us think it's okay, some of us think it's unfortunate. And looking at some of the examples of history shows such a smallpox vaccination that those battles are always going to be there. So how does this current vaccine battle between public health officials and the vaccine hesitant measure up to those in years past in history? Difficult to measure that kind of thing historically. It's difficult to put it on a scale the same as the present. In some senses, it was more extreme. We know there were cholera riots, for example. We know there were anti-vaccination riots. It was almost impossible in some parts of Britain in the late 19th century to get elected as a local politician if you supported vaccination. There are many arguments, but the key one was about liberty. It was about not being forced by the state to be immunised against smallpox. And hello, this is very, very, very similar to what's happening now. Mm -hmm. that, That just sounds so resonant. And the only way that this was solved historically was by fining people for not being vaccinated. And if they didn't get vaccinated after being fined, sending them to prison. One of the compromises that came around this was exemptions. As the 20th century progressed, it became more possible to get an exemption. In fact, you may have heard the term conscientious objector. That came from smallpox vaccination. We quite often hear about that in relation to not wanting to be conscripted to go to war and there were conscientious objectors. It actually came from people who resisted smallpox vaccination. And they could register various ideological, religious and so on reasons. But it had to be addressed through rather draconian measures. And even up until the 1970s and 80s, the, the smallpox eradication campaign was run like a military campaign. People were tracked down. They were effectively held home until they were vaccinated. It was a very coercive form of compliance with public health. And I think it's very difficult to say that we're in a different 
cultural moment than we were in the past, where historically there may have been more deference to government, there may have been more deference towards physicians who said, yes, you must get vaccinated. It's difficult to say whether that's more or less now, but it seems to me there might be a case where people can express their desire not to be interfered with government and government you know, responds by stepping back. Maybe there's a little bit more negotiation around that now than there was historically. Yeah. And that is partly to do with the fact that a lot of the time in a lot of places and locations in the 19th and early 20th century, not everybody had access to the vote. So you could ignore what people said and just tell them what to do because you didn't have to get their favourite, the opinion polls or in elections. So there's a lot of structural things there that are important for us to understand as to why people might hesitate or be resistant to immunisation and vaccination. It's not a question of better or worse. It's more a question of what kind of differences are we observing. So after hearing about all these pandemics and all that we know about them, the trends that continue to persist, the vaccines that we've developed to beat the root viruses at the core of these pandemics, we've only been able to beat one, smallpox. And I'm curious why we as a species, as a society, haven't been able to develop a foolproof strategy to just beat these pandemics. Public health, it's different to what you might call individual health, the sort of relationship you have with your own physician, where it's a one-on-one situation. Public health is actually a relatively new discipline as a formal sort of practice. It's only two, three hundred years old, which sounds a long time, but compared to physicians and doctors taking care of our own health or engineers building aqueducts and things like that, public health as a coherent profession and practice that is associated with government. It's relatively young. It presents a bunch of issues that we maybe not have addressed in the long past. And that is you know, what happens when government takes responsibility for health. What happens when government is asking us to give up some of our freedoms for the benefit of the community, or at least that's the argument. So you know, whenever a disease like this happens, you're always going to get these contradictions between freedom and liberty versus restriction. You know, having duties and responsibilities as citizens and then getting the benefits from those duties and responsibilities. So really, public health is about how we exist as citizens in the world, how duties and responsibilities are formulated. And that's what all these questions are getting at in terms of hesitancy. Even in terms of how we think of and and remember pandemics is constituted through what we think of as being free or being constrained or having responsibilities or having duties that reap benefits. As long as you've got disease, you're going to have public health. And as long as you've got public health, you're going to have these conflicts. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to have these conflicts because it makes us revisit what we are as a society. It's a bad thing to have people die. And it's a bad thing to have people have long COVID. And it's a bad thing to have social upheavals. But this is about democracy working its way through complex issues and complex problems. And so it's a normal thing, actually, even though we're thinking about when are we getting back to normal. This is normal for pandemics and epidemics, these kinds of stresses. The Delta variant continues to drive up cases in the D.C. area and nationally. On Saturday, the number of children hospitalized with COVID-19 in the United States hit a record high of just over 1,900. Children under 12 are not currently able to get the vaccine. Some federal officials have indicated that children ages 5 to 11 will be approved for their shot as soon as November. Health experts continue to urge the eligible but unvaccinated to get their shots. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy said on CNN this Sunday that trust is a key factor in getting vaccine numbers up. This is about trust, and you can't repair trust overnight or in one conversation. 
And so sometimes the conversations we have may not seem to move the needle at all, even if we are armed with the facts and with the science. And that's why the messenger matters in addition to the message. This effort to protect our country against COVID-19 by getting people vaccinated, this has to be a people-powered effort. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Laura Spitalniak. And me, Luke Garrett. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett, and our music is courtesy of Lockspeed. Join us next Monday as the world reopens.